Inside the Adventure, Episode 60, with Tommy Breedlove. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to a good friend's company in the outdoor space called ReadyYeti.com, run by Josh Salvo, a friend who has also been a guest on Inside the Adventure. Ready Yeti showcases new innovative startups in the outdoor space, brands that you've probably never heard of that are making some serious splashes in the outdoor industry. They've recently created a membership program that offers discounts of up to 50% off 70-plus startups in the outdoor space, with new startups being added every month. Throughout your membership, you can also apply to become an ambassador for all of these startups, gain access to limited edition products, and join a community of like-minded outdoor enthusiasts. If you're the kind of person that likes discovering new brands in the outdoor space, showing off unique new gear to your friends, and supporting ethical companies, then check out the Ready Yeti membership program by going to readyyeti.com members. Use the code Vestigo and get your first two months for free. What's going on, guys? And welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we're going to hear the story of Tommy Breedlove, an influencer, speaker, and coach empowering individuals and ambitious leaders to achieve meaning in life rediscover brilliance, build a legacy, and obtain true balance and freedom. Tommy does this as a founder of Choose Goodness, a movement dedicated to helping executives and entrepreneurs focus beyond the bottom line, a movement empowering courageous, clear, and conscious choices for both individuals and businesses. Through his work, he aspires to encourage organizations to search for unmet human needs that create transformational impact on themselves, their businesses, and society at large. And while you might be thinking that Tommy might not be the traditional type of guest we have on our show, and you're right, he hasn't hiked the circumference of the world, been stranded at sea, or faced off with a mountain lion in the middle of the night. Yes, those are all things that other guests have overcome. But Tommy has embodied the spirit of adventure in the dreams he's pursued and the challenges he's overcome. And today, He'll share with us exactly how that adventurous spirit gave him the strength to leave behind the success of his past career to start his bold next adventure and his work in building that same strength in others. So, yeah, I grew up in South Atlanta in a good blue collar, hardworking part of the state of Georgia. Uh, where I'm from, most people there are military or trade type families. Nobody in my family had ever actually graduated from college. My parents wanted something a whole lot more for me. And so they, especially my mother, she really pushed me into more of a professional career and away from the trade slash military route, although I was very much interested in the military because of all of my family. Uh, Tough neighborhood. I was the youngest boy in an all-boy neighborhood. Um, So because of that, I was bullied quite a bit, uh, both in and out of the home. And so that's kind of a tough way to grow up. And the worst thing that happens to you when you're bullied a lot is over time, you become what you hate, man. You become that bully. And so fast forward to 16, 17, 18, I had three or four sets of friends. I had a couple of groups in high school. I had the group kind of on the side from the old neighborhood. And then I had this other group that was this tough guy, quote, cool guy, quote, always had to wear these mask type dudes, you know, like we all wear. Still, I still wear some of them today. But the worst thing happened when I was 17, 18 years old. The kid that was bullied so much became the bully. And at 18 years old, I was looking at two felonies, my whole life being taken away from me and going away. I had committed a violent crime against someone that I really, really cared a lot about in a moment of extreme amounts of vodka, extreme amounts of jealousy, and just extreme amounts of rage and following the footsteps of some of my family members. And here I am at 18 with two felonies, looking at my whole life going away. Um, luckily, you know, I think they were looking at somewhere between five and eight years of time, which is crazy at 18, if you think about it. But 
by the grace of God, some good luck and some some fortune, those were dropped to misdemeanors, but I did, in fact, spend my 19th birthday incarcerated in a South Atlanta jail, so this kid who thought he was a tough, cool guy really found out quickly that he was actually a sheep <laughs> with a bunch of wolves. But that was the first time, my, that was what I call evolution one in my life, and so, yeah, that's that was a little bit about my childhood. There were some really good moments in my childhood. I loved my granddad. He was a really big influence in my life. My mom also pushed me really hard to be better than I was. And so, yeah, it was. It had its tough things. I think we all have our own stories and tough parts of our childhood. But that's a little bit about where I grew up in the south side of Atlanta, man. Yeah, it did. Do you have any brothers or sisters growing up? I do. I have a sister. She's 10 years older than me. I'm 43. She's 53. And so <clears throat> in, in very much tradition of that kind of that where we're from at 18, she was out. You know, went to find her way in the world. She did a little stint at college, ended up not graduating, but ended up moving to Jacksonville, Florida. So she was gone by the time I was uh, eight years old. So, yeah, that was that's her. So it's, it was almost like being an only child. Kinda, kinda, yeah. Yeah, for the first eight years, she did a nice job. The with especially some of the the physical bullying in the neighborhood, she did a nice job of when she was a little bit older protecting me, and then when she left, both inside and out of the house, it got to. Got a little tough <laughs> growing up, man. But it is what it is, right? Made yeah. me who I am today. Yeah. So as uh, kind of a, as the youngest kid in in that group, um, uh, kind of growing up, uh, what were some of the things that that life was like that that you had to um, kind of do to to get by in in that environment? Yeah. So what you do to get get by is you become everybody's friend. You become funny. Um, make everybody laugh you start developing what I call armor uh, and some people call it masks and you develop the survival techniques um, and it was at school and it was at home and it was on the streets in the neighborhood as you develop these things to hopefully get everybody to a not really notice you and b when they notice you laugh or, or be happy or charisma or compliment them so that's where that initially started so um, both inside and out of the home, and, and some at school, you know, there was always this constant threat of physical violence for sure, but emotional and mental as well, and in some regards, in certain situations, uh, sexual. So it, you, you develop these survival skills, you develop these tools, you develop these talents um, in order to help you get by. Um, sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not successful. So that's, that's a little bit about, that's the kind of the rough side of growing up. Um, it wasn't all bad. You know, it's not one of those things that has defined me in my life, although it did it did anchor me for a long time. Um, but we'll we'll get to that later. But so that's some of the stuff that you you end up surrounding. You know, you you again, it's the armor that you put on to quote survive, so that either you can be noticed or not noticed or liked or just just kind of blend in with the crowd. So that's a little bit about what that was like, man. During that time, what were some of the things that you were thinking about for the future? Was college something you wanted to do? What were you interested in? You know, it's it's really kind of hard to remember for me. Um, so much of that time period in my life is still kind of just a shadow in black and white. I do remember the desire, and I think it came from my mom and my granddad. There was a desire to go to college, although I didn't even know what that meant. And so what was college? What was a, a white-collar, professional-type existence? It was kind of like a foreign land in a foreign country because we just didn't know. I mean, you just it wasn't that we were dumb. We were just ignorant to that kind of lifestyle. And what did that mean? And what did that look like? So I remember one of my youngest aspirations as a young man because in the south side of Atlanta, most people were mechanics at Delta, probably from a military background, worked in the Ford plant, which isn't even here anymore. It's now the big fancy Porsche facility that's down. I don't know if you've seen it, man. The thing is sweet. Uh, Porsche located their headquarters, their North American headquarters down there. So it's just beautiful track, a beautiful facility. Or you worked at Coca-Cola. So I remember probably my youngest aspiration um, coming from good, solid, blue-collar roots is wanting to work for Coca-Cola in some fashion. Like the ultimate, because I saw the trucks all the time, would be to drive a delivery truck. So that's one of the things that I aspired to be as a very young man. And I think over time, especially when I got into high school, I really did have this desire to, to be something different and to go somewhere. We all have our ambitions and dreams. And so I think at that point in high school, there was, a, there was this drive or urge to get into college because I took some business courses in my high school and really loved it. Again, that was kind of <laughs> – that was derailed when I 
decided to make a split second horrible mistake at 18 and ended up, you know, again, being incarcerated at 19. So yeah, that it's, it's hard to remember a lot of that part of my life, but a lot of it I do remember. And I do remember having a lot of good times as well. A lot of big sports type neighborhood, always playing football, baseball, basketball. And I was really freaking good at basketball. And so that was one of my escapes too, as I would sit out there and shoot hoops by myself and hours upon hours upon hours at the time so that was another one of my escapes was basketball man what was your first job my first job was a i was a onion ring maker at mighty casey's which was a fast food joint that doesn't exist anymore (laughs) and this was so long ago man there wasn't any of these (laughs) we actually had to cook you know you would drop fresh onions with batter on them into grease with no gloves on. So that toughens you up really quick too. <laughs> so I would come home with like just hundreds of blisters on my hands. And, uh, did you get a free onion ring? Yeah, you did get as much as you want, but there's only so much of that shit you can eat, <laughs> man. <laughs> but what's cool about that is like it just burns and burns and burns for a couple of days, and then all of a sudden you don't feel it anymore. I think it's the same thing that chefs, you know, that, that get burned all the time. They don't feel it anymore, especially the guts and stuff. So, yeah, that was my first gig, and then, uh, yeah, that was it, brother. So when I got out of jail, I, uh, you know, I ended up serving, I can't remember the exact amount of time, but I, I was sentenced to a year. I didn't quite serve that. And when I got out, I just decided to rebuild my life. So I went to school at night in a local community college, but took a job at a nuclear waste container factory in South Fulton, which is uh, in downtown Atlanta. So I did that for about a year and a half, and that was really tough, hard work. It was very physical work. It was very hot work. It was very smelly work. And so, yeah, I did that for about a year and a half, and then one day my uh, old man shows up, and I was living in this this particular neighborhood that isn't so nice, you know, doing the best. And I would, brother, man, I was poor at that time. <laughs> I remember having to pawn my car twice to get it fixed so that I could get to work so they wouldn't fire me and then I would violate my probation. So it was a crazy part of my world, man. You had to like decide between eating and repairing your car. But it was also a a really fun time in my life because I was so busy with working the job and then constantly in the car and then going to school at night. So yeah, it really, but when my dad showed up and said, hey man, do you want to get out of here, out of this neighborhood, out of this particular, I had even moved to a, a deeper part of the <laughs> bad part of the neighborhood because I had to do it just to live. And he looked around and he said, uh, yeah, see, you're doing really good. I was doing really good at school. He goes, do you want to get out of that job and do you want to get, you know, try to go to Georgia? And I was like, yeah. And so we applied for Georgia, had to take out loans and whatnot. And Georgia didn't immediately let me in because of my past. Um, had to write him a letter, had to be interviewed. And that was, that was really the first time that I had to tell my story. But by the luck and I guess some divine universal intelligence, nature, God, whatever you want to call it. I ended up there, and that began my uh, professional life, man. What was the goal for going to Georgia? What was the um, the aspiration for for a life that you wanted to change from the one that you had? So I think there were several goals. If you if we back up a little bit, I was also I didn't enjoy it, but I was really good at it. I was a musician in high school. I was good at it. It's one of those things my mom wanted me to do. I'd rather play basketball. She wanted me to be in the orchestra, and I was. And so I actually had a full ride to Georgia out of high school. I just screwed that up by getting in trouble. Take that away when you do that. And so I had known about Georgia, and I think it was just kind of one of the, you know, we didn't really know much about Emory and Georgia Tech. I didn't want to be an engineer. So I think I ended up at Georgia just to, A, get out of that job, B, getting into an environment where I wasn't constantly working. I, you know, I took out the debt just to get through the school. And so I think it was the, a combination of just wanting to go somewhere different, away from town, wanting to go into a good business-type program, which I did, and, again, just get away. And so when I got there, it was like Oz, man. I'd never seen anything like that, 18-year-old kids driving BMWs, people smiling, people learning, people laughing. It was just a different feel. It was a different environment. It was a different emotional thing. People acted different. They talked different. They looked different. And so it was just like a million miles from where I grew up. And so that was kind of cool about it too. But when I got there, man, I just plugged into everything I could from programs to um, out-of-classroom type things with the – certain business fraternity, certain um, academic uh, 
achievement things that I was elected into. So yeah, I plugged into everything, man. And so that, what's cool about that story is I ended up from jail to University of Georgia to Deloitte and Lesson, which is one of the big, big financial consulting firms. Um, public accounting, big financial consulting firm, but it, uh, within three years, I was able to do that, man. So, What do you think caused that? Was it a mindset shift? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was a mindset shift because I've always been ambitious. I was also blessed with a good brain. I think the fact that I didn't want to end up back in jail, um, and it's easy to do once you get into the system, and I had some mentors appear in my life in, in incarceration, and they helped me see that this is the beginning of a revolving door thing. You just end up coming back and back again. And there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that that is a, be a different show. But those guys really kind of inspired me not to go back. I think between being in jail, being one of the youngest people in that facility and realizing how brutal that life would have and could have been for me in a lot of different ways, to working in that factory, making not a lot of money, very, very hard work, ended up getting injured a few times, having a hernia, having to get surgery. It was just a, it was a tough gig and couldn't really succeed in life. You could barely feed yourself and pay rent and fix your car and there would have never been any vacation. So I think between jail, the factory, some ambition from my mom and granddad, and just knowing that I didn't want to go back there, that I wanted to get out, I plugged in a million percent. And in three years at Georgia, I think I made one B, and that was due to some sort of com computer glitch. And then, in my opinion, school. Definitely. Would, the, yeah, school. Would, it's kind of like when you go to jail, everybody's innocent, right? <laughs> but, yeah, I just really did good there, man. And so all the way up to my last semester, because I already had a gig, my last semester, we decided to travel, go see all the football games, and ended up getting B's all then. But before that, I mean, I was just all in all the time from studying to fun to extra activities. And so, yeah, I think it was just this drive not to end up back where I grew up. How did it feel to be in such a different environment? It was awesome, dude. It was um, – <clears throat> but honestly, man, it's really intimidating at first for someone – I guess it's intimidating for everybody to go away from home for the first time, but for someone – I ended up finding a lot of dudes like me that were either later later bloomers that were still working and, and going to school or people that were from more humble or blue-collar beginnings like myself. <clears throat> and what was easy to do that is that, you know, in the dorms, there was a certain group that you just kind of like attracts like and you know who they are. And so that particular group of friends who's now done very, very well in life, um, they were really driven like I was. They were also wanting to do business like I was. And so I also surrounded myself with them, but it was, again, it was, I can't explain it unless you've seen it and know it. <clears throat> a lot of people describe it about, it, it really was two different worlds. It was a world of hope. It was a world of laughter. It was a world of learning. It was a world of smiling. It was a world where people didn't realize, they didn't think the whole world was against them and the whole world had an anchor on them. By background, a lot of people spend their time in envy, anger, judgment, resent me. The world is against me, wise me, us first them. Those people got there by luck. And so getting there, it was like being in Oz, man, I'm telling you. It was like a whole different world. And then, you know, looking back now, it's just crazy. But, yeah, it was humbling, man. And it was scary at first, but, I, hey, man, feel the fear and do it anyway, brother. So when you got to Deloitte, was that – how did that feel? Was that a big accomplishment? Did it – on the track to accomplishing something that was a very different lifestyle? Well, I, I, the, the answer is I had already accomplished it. Did I sink in that at the time, candidly, man, the only people that really care about big financial firms and big legal firms are people who work in them. The rest of the world doesn't really give a damn. And so I was kind of one of those guys that didn't care that this name of Price Waterhouse, Deloitte, Alston and Bird, whatever you want to call it, all these different firms, Boston, Boston Consulting, McKinsey, blah, blah, blah. That's all for people that work in those firms. And I never really bought into that. But what I did know is my starting salary was probably more than my mom had ever made in her life and pretty close to what my dad was making as a mechanic, at, you know, after like 30 years at Delta. And so that did sink in. But I still didn't have any really good concept of money and money management. So from a financial thing, but what I didn't still have is that self-confidence, belief in myself. You know, we all have our fears and insecurities and worthiness issues. But so what I did, you know, when I got to Deloitte, was it really about making it? It was a, 
I was pretty pretty amazed that I actually got the gig because of my background um, and some of the troubles I got in as an 18-year-old kid, but they just didn't seem to care about that or they didn't look. I didn't know. It didn't really matter at that point <laughs> because they recruited me pretty pretty early because of my academic grades and some of the stuff I was involved with. But I never really bought into the whole us first them and we're better just because of my background. And, can't, and honestly, if you really want me to be truthful – I probably on a million levels didn't feel like I fit in and just, again, put my head down and worked really hard and didn't get caught into the politics. And because of that, I was successful there as well. But Carl's brother, I got to be honest with you, though, but if you fast forward 15 years after that, the truth is I know I didn't deal with the anger, the fears, the insecurities, the worthiness, the kid that didn't feel like he was belong. And when I got up to 36 and at partnership level at a different firm, that manifested itself into a whole bunch of different stuff. So, yeah, it, it felt like an accomplishment, of course, but at that time in my life and at that particular I couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't be present with it. I was always either planning the future or worrying about or regretting the past. So it was, it was awesome being there, but it meant a lot to be there, but it probably it wasn't part of my life plan to go work in public accounting, mergers and acquisitions, and financial consulting. So I was just kind of there collecting a check man but I enjoyed it work I enjoyed the people I met still have some of my best friends today so that's 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 a really long-winded answer to that question but yeah brother yeah what what was the mindset going into that job in terms of your goal of what you wanted to create in the future and then how did that change over time yeah I don't think there was a goal um I think most people who go to that type of job know they're going to be gone within two to four years and go to a corporate gig and then really move up from there I didn't have any of those plans. Um, I really enjoyed the work. I was really good at the work. Um, and so I believe my mindset and plans were just to ride the wave and see where the wave took me. And so because I enjoyed it, because I was good at it, I had a certain personality that worked really well in that industry. A lot of people are really good technicians in that, but they don't have people skills. And I had a little bit of both. And so that really served me well. And so I was recruited out of there really quickly by an international German firm because I, I did a lot of international work there. And so I guess the, the thought was or the ambition was to just see if I could make partner. And so I was recruited out of there, uh, Deloitte by a German firm. And I was recruited out of a German firm by uh, a local regional firm here. It's really kind of a larger regional international practice here. And look up at 36 and there I was a principal slash junior partner. So I guess some subconscious thing, that was the goal without even really being the goal. <laughs> Again, it was just about working hard, putting your head down. And candidly, I was really competitive. I just knew I had a different set of life skills and I wanted to use that certain, the fighting and the anger and the violence from my past, both, stuff that I did and the stuff that was done to me and use it in a more appropriate way toward business and thought it would bring me the happiness and the, the, the American dream for lack of a better word. And I look up at 36, I've got the car, I've got the watch, got the girl, got the title, got the prestige. I'm literally on the top floor looking down at Atlanta in this office and I turn around at 36. I'm a junior partner slash principal of this firm and just see this wake of destruction, man. The destruction was no longer the violence and the of my past, but it was still this little boy who didn't feel worthy and didn't feel like he belonged, and that manifested itself in a whole lot of behaviors, brother. So my marriage was crumbling. On the outside, it looked like I had it all. I had the, again, the, the suit, the cufflinks, the car. You would have said, that dude's going someplace. And that, you know, hey, I want to hang out with a guy like that because he's successful, but on the inside, I was really dying. And so... If there was a, a list of 100 things not to do right then, brother, I checked off like 90 of them. I think I told you that before. <laughs> you know, I was living that whole Wolf of Wall Street madman lifestyle. I'm wearing all these masks. The I'll work harder than you mask. The tough guy mask. The never show weakness mask. The I'm going to work 24 hours a day and get a badge of honor because that's what we're supposed to do, right, to obtain this American dream. And it really was just a facade of bullshit. And so... Um, I just at 36 years old said enough is enough. I don't know what this is, but I need to deal with this and figure out who I am or what I want to be and what I want to stand for. Because I did feel like there was something deep down inside of me, man, that felt like I was compromising my values. I was compromising my dignity and it was all in a facade so that people would see me like me. And it was, it was actually having the exact opposite effect. So 
yeah, that's just a little bit about fast forward because I didn't deal with, we all got our stories, right? We all got things that were done to us. We've all done things. We've all made mistakes. And I didn't want to live my story anymore, man. I wanted to live my life. And so that's why I decided to change at 36. And, and that was actually pointed out to me by one of my first mentors. It's, hey, man, do you want to live your story or life? And let's start living your life, rebuild yourself, rebuild yourself as a human, as a man, and as a protective person of society and get on the right side of karma, brother. So that's that's what happened at 36, man, and that's what led me, you know, seven years later, how many years later to you, brother. So here we are having this conversation, man. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad you did that. Otherwise, we may have never Yeah, had no, we wouldn't have, man. I'd probably be dead, seriously. I was I was unconsciously trying to kill myself at that time, man. No, no joke. So how, how did you overcome that? that environment that was so toxic for for your health and, and what steps did you take to, to change that and how did you get the courage to do it? It really wasn't the environment that was toxic. However, I do believe this. I do believe that individuals, depending on where they are, especially mentally and emotionally, really surround themselves with their work and friends with people who are very similar to them. And this is an opinion and this is, this is not scripture or fact or biblical knowledge, but I do believe the organizations, friends that I was hanging around and the professional network that I was in were in a lot of pain as well because they were doing the same behavior as I was. And I'm talking, I'm calling out the leadership of certain firms all around town that I hung out with that wear one mask at church, one mask at home. And then at night they're wearing a whole lot of other masks. You know who you are boys. And so, yeah, anyway, I just had to say that, but Really, it wasn't about the environment of the business. It was really about us as men with that fraternity, Viking, competition, um, locker room mentality of can't show weakness, can't ever show emotion, we're all badasses, blah, 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 stuff I dealt with as a boy, except we really did use our fist and we really did get down back then but this was done in business in the name of toughness in the name of tough guy we see it all we're seeing it in the news right now big time and that manifests itself in a whole lot of shitty behaviors from small compromises to when you're at work you're thinking about home when you're at home you're thinking about work to not going to your kids ball games all the way to horrific things man affairs porno addictions strip club addictions, cocaine, you name it, gambling, all the way up to suicide. And so many of these white-collar boys that I knew, I mean, I've had three guys commit suicide in the past year and a half in the financial and legal industries. And it's all because we're chasing this, this dream and this perfectionism and this money and ambition, and we can't show weakness. And even if it doesn't make us happy, we're going to do it more and more and more and more. And we never talk about emotions. We never talk about mental state. We never talk about living our value systems and our truths and really dropping our guard and working on our shit so that we can be better men. And I said enough is enough. And, brother, the, re the question was, what, how did I get the courage? Is because after four days of chaos, debauchery, dignity, you know, compromising my dignity and values, I really believed on the New Year's weekend of my 36th year I was unconsciously seeking to go into the darkest holes in Atlanta and the darkest places and hoping someone would take my life. And I woke up literally in a ditch, naked, you name it, without any dignity or confidence, you know, just it was gone. And then, you know, what's crazy, two weeks before that, I was probably sitting in some boardroom telling them how to make another bazillion dollars. But I just didn't deal with that, man. I woke up and said, enough is enough. And there was this little voice inside my head or this down in my soul or, you know, from somewhere else telling me to get up, dust yourself off. And that's where Evolution 3 began. So Evolution 1 was getting scared straight as a kid. Evolution 2 was finally dealing with my bullshit, you know, becoming the man that I wanted to be, both emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. And that began Evolution 3. And it did take a lot of courage, man. It took a lot of courage to just own my stuff, to be transparent about everything I had done, to really have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with friends that did love me, my family, my wife. And so I just dusted myself off and said enough is enough, and I went on this mental and emotional and spiritual journey or transformation just, just to really find my truth, rediscover who Tommy was, rediscover my brilliance, and, and really achieve meaning in my value systems in life, brother. And that's, that's a little bit about my story, man. And what did that look like? that step first step for me <clears throat> i'll be 
completely transparent is at that time, you know, my wife and I kept going to these marriage counselors <laughs> to quote, fix our marriage. And I think the second or third counselor, same thing always happened, brother, is we would be in the counseling and by the second or third session, they'd always turn to me and say, Hey man, why don't the next time you come back and Heather can stay at home and let's you and I chat. Happened every single time, man. And I was like, what? Nothing's wrong with me, man. Clearly she's a problem. But <clears throat> the truth is, is the last one said, look, Tommy, I can work with you for the next 12 years about stuff that you're dealing with, stuff you've seen, stuff that's been done to you, stuff you've done. But there's this place in Tennessee called Onsite. It's in the mountains. And in seven days, they can do more for you to re rediscover who you are and to give you tools and systems to help live a more productive, happy life. And when I woke up, literally in that ditch, I um, I remembered him saying that. So I called him up, and I'm like, hey, man, can you get me in that thing? It wasn't easy to get into. Like, celebrities go there. They have scholarships for people that can't afford to go there. It's not it's not a rehab-type place. It's a really rediscover who you are and deal with your stuff-type place. I was like, get me in there, man. And so he got me in, and it was just the first time in 36 years that I felt it was the first time that I could remember my childhood, certain parts of my childhood. It was, it was just like they cut me open and showed me my insides for four days and then put me back together for three days and then gave me all these tools, suggestions. And at that time, I was drinking from a fire hose, man. So whatever they told me to do, I just did it. A couple of mentors appeared in my life at that facility, and so um, – and that was during a time at the firm that you weren't allowed to take off. It didn't matter if you were a partner or not a partner. And I just told him, look, I'm getting out of this. And they were like, well, you can't do that. I was like, well, I am doing it. And I don't care if I have a job when I get back. And including my marriage, I was like, here's who you're married to. Here's who I am. And so I'm going to go away and deal with this shit. And if you're not back, if you're not here when I get back, I get it. You can have everything. I even told Heather that. You can have it all. I don't care. Take it because you deserve it. Trust me. I know what it's like to be married to a dude like me. And so both at, from an employment level and from a personal relationship, I didn't, I didn't really, I just wanted to get better um, and be a better human and be a happy human and a balanced human and a de-stressed human. And so it was really an amazing seven days, and they made a strong suggestion, and I'm just going to throw it out there, um, because uh, there was some, some pretty big sexual abuse I, I, I experienced as a young man. And so they were like, why don't you come back for another week in March? And that's a much smaller group. It's eight dudes. And so that really was a pretty big enlightening thing. That second time I visited to deal with the trauma and stuff uh, that really causes us to do certain things that doesn't excuse it, but it really enlightens it up and gives you tools again to get by it and to stop living your story and to get accountable to your actions and move forward. So that was a pretty powerful seven or eight days too with eight dudes really that there's some things you can't unhear that have been done to people. And so between those two weeks and the tools they gave me, but I, at that point, I, be, I got out of being addicted to work and addicted to money and really got addicted to self-growth, self-improvement, self-love, reading, and growing, and became very open-minded where I was actually very closed-minded before that. And so since then, it's been this seven-year journey of just sharpening the pencil for me as a man. I still spend an hour or two a day working on me. I do. Uh, whether it's meditation, whether it's reading, whether it's going to a conference, whether it's um, every day I meditate, every day I read, every day I exercise on a certain point. And it's really about showing up for myself each and every day so that I can show up, A, for my family, B, for my community, and C, for all the businesses that I'm involved in these days. And it's just been amazing. Coolest thing happened, Marshall, at the firm. And this firm was like, no, you can't go, you can't do this. But because I just turned into Tommy, whatever that meant for me at that time and became the person that I wanted to be. I went, you know, I always thought that I had to be tough and wear this armor and not show weakness and can't ask and outwork you and out tough you in business. And when I got rid of all that nonsense and put down all those masks in three years, brother, because I didn't decide to leave the firm at that time, I went from junior partner to international practice leader to senior partner slash equity senior partner to elected to the board of directors by 39. And I was by far the youngest person on that board. And it was all because the business was growing. I was growing. I went from the most disliked person at the firm to one of those beloved. Everybody wanted to work for me. The international practice was exploding. We were winning awards. 
And so just by being a better human, and I was working half the time that I used to work. I went from like 80, 90 hours a week down to like 30. It drove them nuts, but they couldn't, they couldn't say anything about the, the data that was coming in, both from happiness and success and the, fir- the money that was coming in the firm. And so just by being a good dude and doing the right things, brother, it, it, really, it really transformed its life into both personal and professional success. And during that time, the Choose Goodness movement was created, which was just a benchmark for me as a human, um, an aspirational benchmark that how I wanted to live. And now that's turned into everything that you see today from the Choose Goodness movement to the philanthropy we do to the men's coaching and professional mentoring I do to the public speaking stuff to just help these dudes who want to put down these masks and really, without compromising their financial integrity or success, but they want to find meaning, they want to find less stress, they want to find balance. They want to be the authentic and real them and stop wearing all this bullshit armor. Those are the dudes that I want to talk to. Those are the dudes I want to represent. And that's the speaking I want to do, and that's why I'm asked to do a lot of um, corporate and professional speaking out there to talk about my story but also give tools and skills and, and things that people can do to really be successful humans on this earth. So that's my story, brother. How did the Choose Goodness movement emerge, and how do you think it would have affected you and, and helped you if, if you were one of those people that were able to utilize that back then before you had that life change and realization? So the movement, I'll, I'll tell you how it started. It started just as questions that I would ask myself. And literally, in a, in a small choice, a big choice, or a decision, before, you know, because I am drawn to the dark side, brother, I just am. So before I would make any small or big decision or who I wanted to hang with or, or what I wanted to do professionally or personally, I would ask myself, have I chose goodness for myself, i.e., have I invested in myself first? Have I taken care of my mental being, my emotional being, my physical being, spiritual being? But does this decision or choice, a conscious, courageous, clear choice that I'm making out of not out of fear, out of abundance, I'm making it in the present moment, I'm not worried about the future or the past, is it filled with goodness for myself, someone else, or my community? And goodness means something different to every person on earth, but my goodness is just about serving myself and others at my highest truth that doesn't negatively affect anybody in any way. And so that's what goodness means to me. And so it really just started as, you know, instead of me going one step forward, nine back, which I was doing you know, previously, it was about moving nine forward and one back. And it's really just about moving the ball forward from integrity, from a value systems, from love, from courage, from in, a, in the present moment, and really doing all that with empathy and compassion and just being the human that I was meant to be. So it really was life-changing for me. And when I first decided to leave the firm, and this is still a major part of the movement, is it was all about teaching businesses and executives and entrepreneurs, how they can, A, choose goodness for their companies themselves and their businesses to blend that humanity and profitability aspect. And it's still a major part of the Choose Goodness movement. It's education, it's programs, it's retreats, it's consulting. But it was all about, hey, I lived a life of a large-scale mergers and acquisitions, financial accountant and corporate consultant for all these years, and I know how to make money and teach people how to make money from systems to processes to tools, but I've also lived on the other side of this to where if we are as good as leaders, as good as business people, and as good as humans that we can be, we can really have it all. And by the way, not only can you have it all, you can have a whole lot more success, both personally and professionally, by doing the right things. And so that's still a major part of the movement. There's a lot of people that help me with that part of the movement. And over this past year, brother, so it's been huge from uh, an accelerator standpoint, incubator standpoint, from an investment standpoint, and from an educational consulting program standpoint. But it's also about blending humanity and profitability and helping people with clear, conscious, and courageous choices, whether big or small, to live the lives they were always meant to. And my part of that has changed. We're actually looking for someone in the next year to take that over from me. We have quite a few people that work with us as well. But my part is because I've made such drastic changes in my life, and there's all these men from the age of 28 to 68. It's amazing how many are reaching out to me. Just saying, you got to tell this story. you got to give people tools and hope that they can be the men they want to be. And so my, my particular calling in that movement now is to get out there and speak about the story, 
talk about how tools and systems that people can put to place in their business and in their lives to really be better humans, but also work with five or ten minutes at a time to do professional mentoring and coaching to help them live that balanced, less stressed life without compromising their financial integrity, brother. So Choose Goodness is everything for me. It's my baby. It's um, it's a lot of people's babies, and we hope to grow it. We're not, we don't hope. We know we're going to grow it into something massive here in the next couple of years and have really people take it from us to, so that it lives in perpetuity, man. That's the goal over the next couple of years, brother. So, well, it's yeah. incredible to see what you've done with it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's growing, man. It's crazy. It's nuts, actually. <laughs> so, And that's all about doing, you know, it's weird, man. <clears throat> I can't tell you in the past seven years, and especially the past three years, the opportunities, people, things, humans, friends, professional opportunities that appear in your life when you just live your truth, man, when you get out of that envious, jealous, anger, fear, us first them, competitive bullshit, and you just start being you, and you start being you in a way from a non-judging, compassionate, I know it sounds like foo-foo, but it's a truth, brother. This is a truth I'm speaking, man. The things that will appear in your life are so much above and beyond if you live in a place of darkness or you live in a place of light. It's nuts, the things that will <laughs> show up, man. When you show up for yourself, the things that will show up for you. And I wish I could touch all those people who are constantly mad or scared or insecure or feel unworthy or constantly comparing and envious and gen- those things are killers, man. They really are killers. And I trust me, I know I lived them for 36 years. I'm not, you know, I'm not no, I'm no guru, I'm no psychologist. I'm just a dude who lived it and damn near died for it twice and have come out on the other side and have a bazillions of tools and systems and processes that I do every day, both for myself and my businesses and communities and family. And just trust me when I say it's a lot of work. There's no magic pill, there's nobody coming in a coming on a white horse but if you can participate in your own rescue and you invest in yourself and i mean double down on yourself in a lot of different ways you're like you can really have it all man you're sitting in it now man i mean i would have never thought i would have had the things that i had just in friendships and life and experiences and travel and you know the the i'm not a big thing person but the monetary things that i have in my life um, they don't fulfill me like people and events do but you know, I, I would have never dreamt as a young man in that jail cell or even when I was a junior partner of having the, the love and friendships and respect and the people who support me and the accountability coaches and friends and the people that I meet every day that really just, it, it's life-changing, man. It's, I hope it comes through that I'm being legit, man, because I really, I believe this stuff. So it's, it's yeah, I'll stop talking now. Well, the effects, <laughs> the effects that, that I could talk for hours. I'm like, Marshall's like, shut up, man. This is like a 30-minute show. You've already gone on for like 50. <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing a uh, double-the-length episode for you because your story is so awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, I know a, a huge component of making that change and having the courage to do it is is really uh, having the courage to make that change in the first place, to take the leap. And I know that one of the retreats that you recently facilitated, we, we had an adventure component where we did a rappelling trip where we helped uh, a lot of guys, similar to what you're talking about, actually physically take the leap off the side of a cliff and, and no rappel doubt, for the first time. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the importance of taking that first step and, and overcoming that initial fear to get to the result of of what you want, and I know a fear of heights has always been a huge thing for you. Huge. How did you overcome that fear, <laughs> uh, and what advice would you give to do that? The truth is, I don't know if the fear ever goes away, and I'm not talking whether it's like me, and I'll talk. I'll give Marshall some real props here, and his, his uh, partner, Matt, in just a second from Vestigo. They, them, those men, and this was a retreat I was facilitating. I was in charge of <laughs> And we got to the top of that cliff, man, and I was I was pale white and scared to death and just trying not to, to you know, use the bathroom on myself. But let me be clear. I don't know if the fear and the insecurities and the worthiness issues and the comparisons ever really go away. You've just gotta, you've got to get the courage and the willingness to take that first step, and I think you just said it best. And so for me, I knew if I got to the top of that, I, I was, A, thinking about every excuse in the world not to go to that cliff that day because I could, I could have used the excuse of I need to prepare for the rest of the retreat to be here for those men 
and I need to do some work, and I need to sleep, and, you know, invest in myself. But I knew if I would have done that, that I'd been lying to myself. And so for me, that particular day, I knew that it, I was in the first group. I think that was more universal, divine God stuff than me. So I don't know why I was in the first group, but I was in the first group. And so I knew if I stayed up on the top of that, I don't know, how tall was that thing? It felt like a million feet. It was probably like eight. It was about uh, 700, 800. <laughs> it's like it felt like felt like I was on the top of Everest, but something tells me it's like 18 feet. It's actually taller than Everest. <laughs> about, about 60 feet. 60 feet, but it it was pretty straight. I mean, it wasn't totally straight down, but it felt pretty straight down. You're, I'm sure you've seen a lot worse. But for me, it felt like a thousand. And I knew I've been, you know, teaching these boys and they, these these particular men. They were from the ages of 35 to 55. There were some really successful local celebrities there. There was local chefs there, really, really good business guys that were looking for balance, looking for de-stress, looking for success. But I can't talk to them about courageous action and taking huge steps in their personal, their family, and their professional lives if I'm not showing up and willing to do it myself. And I knew I would have been a fraud. But you said it best, that initial step, even if it's a baby step, that it's so hard. Because it's easy to do what we've always done. It's easy to go veg on Netflix or to go have that 87th beer or to just do play video games or numb with social media on our phones. It takes courage to pick up a book. It takes courage to enroll in a program. It takes courage to hire a coach like me. It takes courage for me to take that first step off the side of that cliff and just feel the fear and take action. But that's the biggest step of all. If you can you can look within and get courage and get up and move I mean just take that one step and I was scared to death but one step at a time I went down that mountain and got to the bottom and here's the here's the kicker of it all whether it's rebuilding your life or just investing your life or really just sharpening the pencil to be a better human or man or woman than you were yesterday when you get to the bottom of the hill, in life you never get to the bottom of the hill, brother. You just don't. It's a journey. But why can't we not work at taking action and courage to live in our authentic truth and what we were put on this earth to do? Because I do believe there's goodness in every human and every organization on earth, and I believe we were all put here for a reason. But the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, is not going to tell you what that reason is. You just know it deep down in your soul, deep down in your molecules. So if you can take that first step off that cliff and you can get to the bottom of that cliff in order to get that next cliff, life is so much more rewarding and will reward you. I mean, the, you, the, we've got The Alchemist right in front of us, this book by Paolo Coelho. And that's the, what the whole book's about, is finding your truth, your calling. I forgot what they call it in there. Your, um, your legend, your personal legend, I think is what they call it in that one. But everybody's got one of those. And do you want to be a vegetable on the couch? Do you want to sit there and just numb yourself with food or alcohol or games or social media and constantly be in the us versus them? Or do you want to step off that cliff and take action and invest in yourself? It never ends. There's no magic pill. It's hard work. Um, just like going off that. I mean, you saw me, man. I was scared to death on the side of that mountain, brother. And you and Matt and the boys. And I call them the boys. These are grown-ass men. Um helped me get down it so this you know the mentor became the mentee you know the, the teacher became a student and I believe that in everything in life and I did it and when I got to the bottom this thrill of thank God uh, this happiness this peace but also hey you know you can do this and that's a great metaphor for life to participate in your own rescue double down invest in yourself Get up, take action, and it's never too late. Because how many, dude, how many spins do we get around the sun, man? Do you want to live it with regret? Do you want to live it in anger? Do you want to live it in envy? Or do you want to just get up and live your life and get up, dust yourself off, and seek happiness and balance and truth, man? And so that's what I'm all about. That's what I'm all about teaching. That's what I'm all about learning. I'm a student. I constantly read. I mean, we've got like 12 books in front of us as we're sitting here using them for microphone stands. But you know, man, it, I, I live this stuff, you know. So, yeah, great metaphor for that mountain. But it was it was the truth. I was scared to death, and I was putting every excuse in my world not to go, and I decided to show up. And showing up's the battle, man, seriously.
I think we're going to put the video of Tommy repelling in the show notes. You, <laughs> you can see, see the, the fear. fear. <laughs> Hopefully you don't see a stream going down my leg. I don't think I use, I don't think I pissed myself, but I was pretty close. <laughs> you, just the, you did an amazing job of overcoming something that was very clearly terrifying and yeah. setting the tone for everyone else. That was incredibly inspiring. If speaking of inspiring, uh, inspirational advice, if you could go back and give yourself at the age of 18, one piece of advice, what would it be? I think it would be believe in yourself. I think for me, and again, we've all have our stories. We all have things that were done to us, and we've all done things. All of us. It's, it's, a, it's unique to the human experience. But I do believe I was letting my environment, my family, my friends, and my fears overwhelm me. And it gets down into your DNA and soul level. And I think the self-hate and the not believing in myself and the didn't feel worthy thing just seeped way down in my soul. And it didn't start correcting and going the other way until I was 36. If I went back and told myself when I was 18, and again, there's no light switch and this is not easy, is that I would, I would, I would inject myself with self-belief and self-love because I do believe you've got to believe in yourself and it takes tools to do that depending on certain things in your life. It, there's a whole lot of tools and work to be done on that front. But if you, if I would have told myself to invest in yourself, especially mentally and emotionally, because you can go to the gym. It's just like going to the gym, man, physically, right? I mean, both our brains and our hearts need to be worked out and there's a lot of ways to do that. But I would have told myself, don't get discouraged. Don't let the opinions, thoughts, and actions of others and what other people think dictate your life. You dictate your life. You make your choices. You're your own human. You're your own man. Double down. Invest in yourself to find that self-love, that self-worth, that self-peace, to minimize the noise and insecurities and fears, and just keep putting one foot in front of the other because I do believe I was letting those insecurities, those fears, and I really put so much credence into what others thought because I didn't believe in myself. So that's a long-winded way of saying I would tell myself to double down and invest in myself and mitigate the noise. Because that's what we are, man. We're just this big stew of where we were born, who we hang out with, what we read, what our parents think, what religion they prescribe to, what part of the world we're from, and what news and social media we listen to and none of that stuff's real it's all just noise it's all just opinions none of it's truth only your heart your molecules and your soul know what the truth is for you and so my advice to myself would be cut out all that double down invest in myself participate in your own rescue those are huge words for me that were taught by river rafting grad and just put one foot in front of the other and take the courage to be the man and human you want to be. That's what I would tell myself. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Tommy Breedlove, who is one of the most engaging people I have ever met. So if you're out there looking for a speaker or facilitator for your company or team, Tommy is 100% your guy. If you or someone you know has your own adventure story and would like to be featured on the show, you can contact us by visiting vestigo.co slash podcast. While on our website, you can also listen to our past episodes and subscribe to the show. Remember, your next adventure is right around the corner. The only thing stopping you is you. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week on Inside the Adventure.